Section 30 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The South Pole by Ruand Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 30, Volume 2, Chapter 15. The Eastern Sledge Journey, Part 1, by Lieutenant K. Prestrud. On October 20, 1911, the Southern Party started on their long journey. The departure took place without much ceremony and with the smallest possible expenditure of words. A hearty grasp of the hand serves the purpose quite as well on such occasions. I accompanied them to the place we called the starting point on the south side of the bay. After a final good luck to our chief and comrades, as sincere a wish as I could have ever bestowed upon any one, I cinematographed the caravan, and very soon after it was out of sight. These fellows went southward at a great pace, Halmer Hansen's quick-footed team leading as usual. There I stood, utterly alone, and I cannot deny that I was a prey to somewhat mixed feelings. When should we see these five again, who had just disappeared from view on the boundless plain, and in what conditions? What sort of report would they bring of the result? There was plenty of room for guesses here, and abundant opportunity for weighing every possibility, good and bad, but there was very little to be gained by indulging in speculations of that sort. The immediate facts first claimed attention. One fact, amongst others, was that Framheim was a good three miles away, another was that the cinematograph apparatus weighed a good many pounds, and a third that Lindstrom would be mightily put out if I arrived too late for dinner. Our chef insisted on a high standard of punctuality in the matter of mealtimes. Homeward, then, at the best speed possible. The speed, however, was not particularly good, and I began to prepare for the consequences of a long delay. On the other side of the bay I could just make out a little black speck that seemed to be in motion towards me. I thought at first it was a seal, but fortunately it turned out to be Jorgen Stuberud with six dogs and a sled. This was quite encouraging. In the first place I should get rid of my unmanageable burden, and in the second I might expect to get on faster. Stuberud's team consisted, however, of four intractable puppies, besides Puss and another courser of similar breed. The result was that our pace was a modest one, and our course anything but straight, so that we arrived at Franheim two hours after the time appointed for dinner. Those who know anything of Master Lindstrom and his disposition will easily be able from this explanation to form an idea of his state of mind at the moment when we entered the door. Yes, he was undoubtedly angry, but we were at least equally hungry, and if anything can soften the heart of a Norwegian caterer, it is a ravenous appetite in those he has to feed provided, of course, that he have enough to offer them and Lindstrom's supplies were practically unlimited. I remember that dinner well. At the same table the eight of us had sat for so many months, there were now only three left, Johansen, Stuberud, and I. We had more room, it is true, but that gain was a poor satisfaction. 
We missed those who had gone very badly, and our thoughts were always following them. The first thing we discussed on this occasion was how many miles they might be expected to do that day, nor was this the last dispute we had on the same theme. During the weeks and months that followed, it was constantly to the fore, and gave plenty of material for conversation when we had exhausted our own concerns. As regards these ladders, my instructions were, 1. To go to King Edward Seven Land, and there carry out what exploration time and circumstances might permit. 2. To survey and map the Bay of Wales and its immediate surroundings. 3. As far as possible to keep the station at Franheim in order, in case we might have to spend another winter there. As regards time, my orders were to be back at Franheim before we could reasonably expect the arrival of the Fram. This was, and would necessarily remain, somewhat uncertain. No doubt we all had a great idea of the Fram's capability for keeping time, and Lieutenant Nilsen had announced his intention of being back by Christmas or the New Year, but nevertheless a year's a long time, and there were many miles in a trip round the world. If we assumed that no mishap had occurred to the Fram, and that she had left Buenos Aires at the time fixed in the plan, October 1, 1911, she would in all probability be able to arrive at the Bay of Wales around the middle of January, 1912. On the basis of this calculation, we decided, if possible, to get the sledge journey to King Edward's Land done before Christmas, while the surveying work around the bay would have to be postponed to the first half of January 1912. I thought, however, seeing the advantages of working while the bay was still frozen over, that it would pay to devote a few days immediately following the departure of the southern party to the preparatory work of measuring. But this did not pay at all. We had reckoned without the weather, and in consequences were well taken in. When one thinks it over afterwards, it seems reasonable enough that the final victory of mild weather over the remains of the Antarctic winter cannot be accomplished without serious disturbances of the atmospheric conditions. The expulsion of one evil has to be effected by the help of another, and the weather was bad with a vengeance. During the two weeks that followed October 20, there were only three or four days that offered any chance of working with the theodolite and plane table. We managed to get a baseline measured, 1,000 meters long, and to lay out the greater part of the east side of the bay, as well as the most prominent points round the camp but one had positively to snatch one's opportunities by stealth, and every excursion ended regularly in bringing the instruments home well covered with snow. If the bad weather thus put hindrances in the way of the work we were anxious to do, it made up for it by providing us with a lot of extra work which we could very well have done without. There was incessant shoveling of snow to keep any sort of passage open to the four dog tents that were left standing, as well as to our own underground dwelling, over which the snow covering had been growing constantly higher. The fairly high wall that we had originally built on the east side of the entrance door was now entirely buried in the snowdrift. It had given us good protection. Now the drift had unimpeded access 
and the opening, like the descent into a cellar that led down to the door, was filled up in the course of a few hours when the wind was in the right quarter. Lindstrom shook his head when we sometimes asked him how he would get on by himself if the weather continued in this way. So long as there's nothing but snow in the way, I'll manage to get out, said he. One day he came and told us that he could no longer get at the coal, and on further investigation it looked rather difficult. The roof of the place where the coal was stored had yielded to the pressure of the mass of snow, and the whole edifice had collapsed. There was nothing to be done but to set to work at once, and after a great deal of hard labor we got the remainder of the precious fuel moved into the long snow tunnel that led from the house to the coal store. With that, our black diamonds were in safety for the time being. This job made us about as black as the diamonds. When we came in, the cook, as it happened, had just been doing a big wash on his own account, a comparatively rare event, and it was a surprise on both sides. The cook was as much taken aback at seeing us so black as we were at seeing him so clean. All the snow shoveling that resulted from the continued bad weather, in conjunction with the necessary preparations for the sled journey, gave us plenty of occupation, but I will venture to say that none of us would care to go through those days again. We were delayed in our real work, and delay, which is unpleasant enough under any circumstances, was all the more unwelcome down here, where time is so precious. As we only had two sledges on which to transport supplies for three men and sixteen dogs, besides all our outfit, and as on the journey back we would have no depots to fall back on, the duration of the journey could not be much extended beyond six weeks. In order to be back again by Christmas, we had, therefore, to leave before the middle of November. It would do no harm, however, to be off before this, and as soon as November arrived, we took the first opportunity of disappearing. On account of getting on the right course, we preferred that the start should take place in clear weather. The fact was that we were obliged to go around by the depot at 80 South, as King Edward Land lies to the east, or rather northeast, of Franheim, this was a considerable detour. It had to be made, because in September we had left at this depot all the packed sledging provisions, a great deal of our personal equipment, and finally, some of the necessary instruments. On the way to the depot, about 30 geographical miles south of Framheim, we had the nasty crevassed surface that had been met with for the first time on the third depot journey in the autumn of 1911 and the month of April. At that time we came upon it altogether unawares, and it was somewhat remarkable that we escaped from it with the loss of two dogs. This broken surface lay in a depression about a mile to the west of the route originally marked out, but however it may have been, it seems ever since that time to have exercised an irresistible attraction. On our first attempt to go south, in September 1911, we came right into the middle of it, in spite of the fact that it was then perfectly clear. I afterwards heard that, in spite of all their efforts, the southern party, on their last trip, landed in this dangerous region, and that one man had a very narrow escape of falling in with dogs and sledge. 
I had no wish to expose myself to the risk of such accidents at any rate while we were on familiar ground. This would have been a bad beginning to my first independent piece of work as a polar explorer. A day or two of fine weather to begin with would enable us to follow the line originally marked out and thus keep safe ground under our feet until the ugly place was passed. In the opening days of November the weather continued to improve somewhat. In any case there was not the continual driving snow. Lindstrom asked us before we left to bring up a sufficient quantity of seals to save him that work as long as possible. The supply we had had during the winter was almost exhausted. There was only a certain amount of blubber left. We thought it only fair to accede to his wish, as it is an awkward business to transport those heavy beasts alone, especially when one has only a pack of unbroken puppies to drive. We afterwards heard that Lindstrom had some amusing experiences with them during the time he was left alone. Leaving the transport out of the question, this seal hunting is a very tame sport. An old arctic hand, or an Eskimo, would certainly be astounded to see the placid calm with which the Antarctic seal allows itself to be shot and cut up. To them, Antarctica would appear as a fairy land made real, a land flowing with milk and honey, where seas are to be found in quantities, and the difficulty of getting at them is reduced to nil. The fact is that these animals have once for all acquired the conviction that they are beyond the reach of any danger so long as they keep on land or on the ice. There they have never been attacked, and they are quite incapable of grasping the possibility of attack. Their natural enemies are in the water, and these enemies are not to be trifled with. That can clearly be seen from the gaping wounds that are often found on the seals' bodies. To avoid the attacks of these enemies, the seals have only to get to the ice, where for generations they have been accustomed to bask in the sun undisturbed, without other neighbors than the, to them, perfectly harmless penguins and skua gulls. The sudden appearance of a man on the scene will therefore at first have very little effect on an Antarctic seal. One can go right up to it without its doing anything but staring with eyes that reflect a perfectly hopeless failure to comprehend the seriousness of the situation. It is only when one touches them with a ski pole or something of the sort that they begin to fear danger. If the stirring up is continued in a rather more pointed fashion, the seal soon shows the most manifest signs of terror. It groans, roars, and at the same time makes an attempt to get away from its unwelcome visitor, but it seldom removes itself many yards at a time, for the motions of seals are just as clumsy and slow on land as they are active and swift in the water. When it is crawled with great pains to a little distance, there is no sign that the interruption has made any lasting impression on it. It looks more as if it took it all in as an unpleasant dream or nightmare, which would then be best to sleep off as soon as possible. If one shoots a single seal, this may happen without those lying round so much as raising their heads. Indeed, we could open and cut up a seal right before the noses of its companions without this making the slightest impression on them. 
At the beginning of November the seals began to have their young. As far as we could make out, the females kept out of water for several days without taking any food, until the young one was big enough to be able to go to sea. Otherwise it did not seem that the mothers cared very much for their little ones. Some, it is true, made some sort of attempt to protect their offspring if they were disturbed, but the majority simply left their young ones in the lurch. As far as we were concerned, we left the females and their young as much as possible in peace. We killed two or three newborn seals to get their skins for our collection. It was another matter for the dogs. With them, seal hunting was far too favorite a sport for the opportunity to be neglected. Against a full-grown seal, however, they could do nothing. Its body offered no particularly vulnerable spots, and the thick, tight-fitting skin was too much even for the dog's teeth. The utmost the rascals could accomplish was to annoy and torment the object of their attack. It was quite another matter when the young ones began to arrive. Among this small gain, the enterprising hunters could easily satisfy their inborn craving for murder, for the scoundrels killed only for the sake of killing. They were not at all hungry, as they had as much food as they liked. Of course, we did all we could to put a stop to this state of things, and as long as there were several of us at the hut, we saw that the whole pack was tied up. But when Lindstrom was left by himself, he could not manage to hold them fast. His tents were altogether snowed under in the weather that prevailed on the seaboard in December. There were not many dogs left in his charge, but I am afraid those few wrought great havoc among the young seals out in the ice of the bay. The poor mothers could hardly have done anything against a lot of dogs, even if they had been more courageous. Their enemies were too active. For them it was the work of a moment to snatch the young one from the side of its mother, and then they were able to take the poor thing's life undisturbed. Unfortunately, there were no sea leopards in the neighborhood of Franheim. These, which are far quicker in their movements than the Wendell seal, and are, moreover, furnished with a formidable set of teeth, would certainly have made the four-footed seal hunters more careful in their behavior. After we had brought up to the house enough seal's carcasses to keep the ten or twelve dogs that would be left supplied for a good while, and had cut up a sufficient quantity for our own use on the way to eighty south, we took the first opportunity of getting away. Before I pass on to give an account of our trip, I wish to say a few words about my companions Johansen and Stuberud. It goes without saying that it gave me, as a beginner, a great feeling of security to have with me such a man as Johansen, who possessed many years' experience of all that pertains to sledging expeditions, and as regards Stuberud, I could not have wished for a better traveling companion than him, either a first-rate fellow, steady and efficient in word and deed. As it turns out, we were not to encounter very many difficulties, but one never escapes scot-free on a sledge journey in these regions. I owe my comrades thanks for the way in which they both did their best to smooth our path. Johansen and Stuberud drove their dog teams. I myself acted as forerunner. The drivers had seven dogs apiece. We took so many 
because we were not quite sure of what the animals we had were fit for. As was right and proper, the southern party had picked out the best. Among those at our disposal, there were several that had previously shown signs of being rather quickly tired. True, this happened under very severe conditions. As it turns out, our dogs exceeded all our expectations in the easier conditions of work that prevailed during the summer. On the first part of the way, as far as the depot in 80 South, the loads were quite modest. Besides the tent, the sleeping bags, our personal outfit, and instruments, we had only provisions for eight days seal flesh for the dogs and tin food for ourselves. Our real supplies were to be taken from the depot, where there was enough of everything. On November 8, we left Franheim, where in future Lindstrom was to reside as monarch of all he surveyed. The weather was as fine as could be wished. I was out with a cinematograph apparatus in order, if possible, to immortalize the start. To complete the series of pictures, Lindstrom was to take the forerunner, who was now, be it said, a good deal behind those he was supposed to be leading. With all possible emphasis, I enjoined Lindstrom only to give the crank five or six turns, and then started out to catch up with the drivers. When I had nearly reached the provision store, I pulled up, struck by a sudden apprehension. Yes, I was right. On looking back, I discovered that incorrigible person was still hard at work with the crank, as though he were going to be paid a pound for every yard of film showing the back view of the forerunner. By making threatening gestures with a ski pole, I stopped the too persistent cinematograph, and then went on to join Stuberud, who was only a few yards ahead. Johansen had disappeared like a meteor. The last I saw of him was the soles of his shoes, as he quite unexpectedly made an elegant backward somersault off the sledge when it was passing over a little unevenness by the provision store. The dogs, of course, made off at full speed, and Johansen was after them like the wind. We all met again, safe and sound, at the ascent to the barrier. Here a proper order of march was formed, and we proceeded southward. The barrier greeted us with a fresh south wind that now and then made an attempt to freeze the tip of one's nose. It did not succeed in this, but it delayed us a little. It does not take a great deal of wind on this level plain to diminish the rate of one's progress. But the sun shone too gaily that day to allow a trifle of wind to interfere very much with our enjoyment of life. The surface was so firm that there was hardly any sign of drift snow. As it was perfectly clear, the mark flags could be followed the whole time, thus assuring us that, at any rate, the first day's march would be accomplished without any deviation from the right track. At five o'clock we camped, and when we had fed the dogs and come into the tent, we could feel how much easier and pleasanter everything was at this season than on the former journeys in autumn and spring. We could move freely in a convenient costume. If we wished, there was nothing to prevent our performing all the work of the camp with bare hands and still preserving our fingertips unharmed. As I had no dog team to look after, I undertook the duty of attending to our own needs. That is to say, I acted as cook. 
This occupation was also considerably easier now than it had been when the temperature was below minus 60 degrees Fahrenheit. At that time it took half an hour to turn the snow in the cooker into water. Now it was done in ten minutes, and the cook ran no risk whatsoever of getting his fingers frozen in the process. Ever since we landed on the barrier in January 1911, we had been expecting to hear a violent cannonade as the result of the movement of the mass of ice. We had now lived a whole winter at Franheim without having observed, as far as I know, the slightest sign of a sound. This was one of many indications that the ice round our winter quarters was not in motion at all. No one, I believe, had noticed anything of the expected noise on the sled journeys either, but at the place where we camped on the night of November 8, we did hear it. There was a report about once in two minutes, not exactly loud, but still, there it was. It sounded just as if there was a whole battery of small guns in action down in the depths below us. A few hundred yards to the west of the camp, there were a number of small hummocks, which might indicate the presence of crevasses, but otherwise the surface looked safe enough. The small guns kept up a lively crackle all through the night, and combined with a great deal of uproar among the dogs to shorten our sleep. But the first night of a sledge journey is almost always a bad one. Stuberud declared he could not close his eyes on account of that filthy row. He probably expected the ice to open and swallow him every time he heard it. The surface, however, held securely, and we turned out to the finest day one could wish to see. It did not require any very great strength of mind to get out of one's sleeping bag now. The stockings that had been hung up in the evening could be put on again as dry as bone the sun had seen to that. Our ski boots were as soft as ever, there was not a sign of frost on them. It is quite curious to see the behavior of the dogs when the first head appears through the tent door in the morning. They greet their lord and master with the most unmistakable signs of joy, although, of course, they must know that his arrival will be followed by many hours of toil, with perhaps a few doses of the whip thrown in. But from the moment he begins to handle the sledge, the dogs look as if they had no desire in the world but to get into the harness as soon as possible and start away. On days like this, their troubles would be few. With the light load and good going, we had no difficulty in covering 19 geographical miles in eight hours. Johansson's team was on my heels the whole time, and Stuberud's animals followed faithfully behind. From time to time we saw sledge tracks quite plainly. We also kept the marked flags in sight all day. In the temperatures we now had to deal with, our costume was comparatively light, certainly most lighter than most people imagine, for there is a kind of summer even in Antarctica, even though the daily reading of the thermometer at this season would perhaps rather remind our friends at home of what they are accustomed to regard as winter. In undertaking a sledge journey down there in autumn or spring, the most extraordinary precautions have to be taken to protect oneself against the cold. Skint clothing is then the only thing that is of any use, but at this time of year 
when the sun is above the horizon for the whole twenty-four hours one can go for a long time without being more heavily clad than a lumberman working in the woods during the march our clothing was usually the following two sets of woolen underwear of which that nearest the skin was quite thin outside the shirt we wore either an ordinary waistcoat or a comparatively light knitted woolen jersey outside all that came our excellent burberry clothes trousers and jacket when it was calm with full sunshine the burberry jacket was too warm we could then go all day in our shirt sleeves to be provided for emergencies we all had our thinnest reindeer skin clothes with us but so far as i know these were never used except as pillows or mattresses the subject of sleeping bags has no doubt been thoroughly threshed out on every polar expedition i do not know how many times we discussed this question nor can i remember the number of more or less successful patents that were the fruit of these discussions in any case one thing is certain that the inherents of one-man bags were in an overwhelming majority and no doubt rightly as regards two-man bags it cannot be denied that they enable their occupants to keep warm longer but it is always difficult to find room for two big men in one sack and if the sack is to be used for sleeping in and one of the big men takes to snoring in the other's ears the situation may become quite unendurable in the temperatures we had on the summer journeys there was no difficulty in keeping warm enough with the one-man bags and they were used by all of us on the first southern journey in september johansen and i used a double bag between us and the intense cold that prevailed at the time we managed to get through the night without freezing but if the weather is so cold that one cannot keep warm in one's body in good roomy one-man bags then it is altogether unfit for sledging journeys november ten immediately after the start this morning we tried how we could get on without a forerunner as long as we were in the line of flags this answered very well the dogs galloped from one flag to another while i was able to adopt the easy method of holding on to stuberud's sledge about midday we were abreast of the depression already mentioned where on the third depot journey last autumn we ran into a regular net of crevasses this time we were aware of the danger and kept to the left but at the last moment the leading team ran out to the wrong side and we cut across the eastern part of the dangerous zone fortunately it was taken at full gallop it is quite possible that i inwardly wished we were all a few pounds lighter as our little caravan raced across those thin snow bridges through which could be seen the blue color of the ugly gulfs below but after the lapse of a few long minutes we could congratulate ourselves on getting over with our full numbers not for anything would i have gone that mile without ski on my feet it would practically have been following in and going out it is perhaps saying a great deal to claim that with ski on one is absolutely secured against the dangers of these crevasses present if misfortunes are abroad anything may happen but it would require a very considerable amount of bad luck for man and ski to fall through november eleven 
In weather like this, going on the march is like going to a dance. Tent, sleeping bags, and clothes keep soft and dry as a bone. The thermometer is about four degrees Fahrenheit. A fellow man suddenly put down in our midst from civilized surroundings would possibly shake his head at so many degrees of frost, but it must be remembered that we have long ago abandoned the ordinary ideas of civilized people as to what is endurable in the way of temperature. We are enthusiastic about the spring-like weather, especially when we remember what it was like down here two months ago, when the temperature showed minus 76 degrees Fahrenheit and the rime hung an inch thick inside the tent, ready to drop on everything and everybody at the slightest movement. Now there is no rime to be seen, the sun clears it away. For now there is a sun, not the feeble imitation of one that stuck its red face above the northern horizon in August, but our good old acquaintance of lower latitudes with his wealth of light and warmth. After two hours' march we came in sight, at ten o'clock in the morning, of the two snow huts that were built on the last trip. We made straight for them, thinking that we might possibly find some trace of the southern party. So we did, but in a very different way from what we had expected. We were, perhaps, about a mile off, when all three suddenly halted and stared at the huts. "'There are men,' said Stuberd. At any rate, there was something black that moved, and after confused thoughts of Japanese, Englishmen, and the like had passed through our minds, we at last got out the glasses. It was not men, but a dog. Well, the presence of a live dog here, seventy-five miles up the barrier, was in itself a remarkable thing. It must, of course, be one of the southern party's dogs, but how the runaway had kept himself alive all that time was for the present a mystery. On coming to closer quarters, we soon found that it was one of Hansel's dogs, Perry by name. He was a little shy to begin with, but when he heard his name, he quickly understood that we were friends come on a visit, and no longer hesitated to approach us. He was fat and round, and evidently pleased to see us again. The hermit had lived on the lamentable remains of poor Sarah, whom we had been obliged to kill here in September. Sarah's lean and frozen body did not seem particularly adapted for making anyone fat, and yet our newly found friend Perry looks as if he had been feasting for weeks. Possibly he had begun by devouring Neptune, another of his companions, who had also given the southern party the slip on the way to the depot in 80 South. However this may be, Perry's rescuer came to an abrupt conclusion. Stuberud took him and put him in his team. We had thought of reaching the depot before the close of day, and this we could easily have done if the good going had continued, but during the afternoon the surface became so loose that the dogs sank in up to their chests, and when at about six in the evening the sledge meter showed twenty-one geographical miles. The animals were so done up that it was no use of going on. At eleven o'clock the next morning, November twelfth, we reached the depot. Captain Amundsen had promised to leave a brief report when the southern party left there, and the first thing we did on arrival was, of course, 
to search for the document in the place agreed upon. There were not many words in the little slip of paper, but they gave us the welcome intelligence, all well so far. We had expected that the southern party's dogs would have finished the greater part, if not the whole, of the seal meat that was laid down here in April, but fortunately this was not the case. There was a great quantity left so that we could give our own dogs a hearty feed with easy conscience. They had it, too, and it was no trifling amount that they got through. The four days' trot from Franheim had been enough to produce an unusual appetite. There was a puppy in Johansson's team that was exposed for the first time in his life to the fatigues of a sledge journey. This was a plucky little chap that went by the name of Lilligut. The sudden change from short commons to abundance was too much for his small stomach, and the poor puppy lay shrieking in the snow most of the afternoon. We also looked after ourselves that day, and had a good meal of fresh seal meat. After that we supplied ourselves from the large stores that lay here with the necessary provisions for the sledge journey of five weeks. Three cases of dog's pemmican, one case of men's pemmican containing ninety rations, twenty pounds of dried milk, fifty-five pounds of oatmeal biscuits, and three tins of malted milk, besides instruments, alpine rope, and clothing. The necessary quantity of chocolate had been brought with us from Franheim, as there was none of this to spare out in the field. Our stock of paraffin was six gallons, divided between two tanks, one on each sledge. Our cooking outfit was exactly the same as that used by the southern party. The instruments we carried were a theodolite, a hypsometer, two aneroids, one of which was no longer than an ordinary watch, two thermometers, one chronometer watch, one ordinary watch, and one photographic camera, Kodak 3 by 3 inches, adapted for using either plates or films. We had three spools of film and one dozen plates. Our medical outfit was exceedingly simple, and consisted of nothing but a box of laxative pills, three small rolls of gauze bandage, and a small pair of scissors, which also did duty for beard cutting. Both pills and gauze were untouched when we returned. It may therefore be safely said that our state of health during the journey was excellent. While the drivers were packing and lashing their loads, which now weighed nearly 600 pounds, I wrote a report to the chief and took an azimuth observation to discover the direction of our course. According to our instructions, we should really have taken a northeasterly course from here, but as our dogs seemed to be capable of more and better work than we had expected, and as there was believed to be a possibility that bare land was to be found due east to the spot where we were, it was decided to make an attempt in that direction. Our old enemy, the fog, had made its appearance in the course of the night, and now hung gray and disgusting, under the sky when we broke camp at the depot on the morning of november thirteen however it was not so bad as to prevent our following the flags that marked the depot on the east my duty as forerunner was immediately found to be considerably lighter than before with greatly increased weight behind them the dogs had all they could do to follow if i went at an ordinary walking pace 
At 11 a.m. we passed the easternmost flag at five geographical miles from the depot, and then we found ourselves on untrodden ground. A light southerly breeze appeared very opportunely and swept away the fog. The sun again shed its light over the barrier, which lay before us, shining and level, as we had been accustomed to see it. There was, however, one difference. With every mile we covered there was the possibility of seeing something new. The going was excellent, although the surface was rather looser than one could have wished. The ski flew over it finely, of course, while the dog feet and sled runners sank in. I hope I shall never have to go here without ski. That would be a terrible punishment. But with ski on one's feet, and in such weather, it was pure enjoyment. Meanwhile, the new sights we expected were slow in coming. We marched for four days due east without seeing a sign of change in the ground. There was the same undulating surface that we knew so well from previous expeditions. The readings of the hypsometer gave practically the same result day after day. The ascent we were looking for failed to appear. Stuberud, who for the first day or two after leaving the depot, had been constantly stretching himself on tiptoe and looking out for the mountain top, finally gave in as his heartfelt conviction that this King Edward's land we were hunting for was only a confounded flyaway land which had nothing to do with reality. We others were not yet quite paired. I share this view for my part in any case. I was loath to give up the theory that assumed a southward continuation of King Edward land along the 158th meridian. This theory had acquired a certain force during the winter and was mainly supported by the fact that on the second depot journey we had seen, between the 81st and 82nd parallels, some big pressure ridges, which suggested the presence of bare land in a southeasterly direction. End of section 30